0: And if you're in the auditorium with me, would you open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 12? We're going to be in verses 1 through 4 this morning, then we're going to spring to other parts of Genesis from here. Let's read the passage first Genesis 12, verses 1 through 4. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went as the Lord had told him. Let's pray. Father, to this we hold, that you have said, I will. And we know by your character, you are faithful, you are unchanging, that you will keep your promises. You have, and you will. To this we hold, Lord, and we cling to it with all of our lives. God, I pray that you'd show us from your word that you're trustworthy, that you'd show us from your word that these are truths and promises we can cling to, that you'd show us from your word the cost of your call to leave earthly treasures, securities, and identities behind and follow you. God, I pray that we would cling to you with all of our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, let's do a brief review before we get to this text this morning. We have covered four major events in the book of Genesis so far, in chapters 1 through 11. Four major events. The first is creation. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He is the subject of the story and the centerpiece. It is about God. He created the heavens and the earth, and he made man, humankind, in his image and after his likeness. Mankind was made to represent God, to rule on his behalf, to have unique relationship with God and and with each other. Mankind was made to reproduce within the context of marriage and to fill the earth, and mankind was made to be the premier recipients of God's abundant grace. And he gave us every provision for life. Now, there was one prohibition. One prohibition. Man was commanded to not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which leads us to the second major event. We have creation, and then we have Genesis chapter 3, the fall, the fall. Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit. The world made perfect is now cursed because of sin. In addition to the guilt and the shame, sin brings pain, sin brings suffering, sin brings struggle, and eventually death to not just mankind, but the rest of the earth and the living creatures within them. But in the midst of this punishment, in the midst of this curse, we see a great promise from God. God promises that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the enemy and therefore reverse this curse. The third major event that we saw in the book of Genesis is the flood. Genesis chapters 6 through 9. The world populates, but it does not get better. It gets far worse in the times of Noah. The wickedness of man was great in the earth. Every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. All flesh on earth had corrupted. The earth was filled with violence. And the Lord regretted that he had made man. And it grieved him to his heart. And so God determines to flood the entire earth, and destroy every living creature. But we should ask, wait a minute though. God made a promise that through the offspring of the woman, a Savior, a Redeemer would come. So what about that promise? That's how we should be thinking as the story unfolds. What about that promise? Well, the promise is preserved because God decides to save Noah and his family and the living creatures that were aboard the ark. And God saves them by grace. He bestows favor on Noah and promises at the end of the flood to never destroy all of life again by flood. So he makes this covenant with Noah, and we see the sign of the covenant, the bow in the clouds. So rain or shine hurricane, or sunny Southern California, we know God keeps his promises. He won't flood the earth and destroy everything in the same way again. And so, the promised seed is preserved, which leads us to the fourth major event we looked at last week, which is the tower, Babel. Noah and his three sons walk off the ark, God's command again, is be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. They partially obeyed. They're fruitful and they multiply, but they do not fill the earth. They congregate at Babel to build a city, to build a tower, to make a name for themselves in direct opposition to God. And so God intervenes. God steps down To spread out these people by confusing their languages, God gets his way. He wanted nations, he makes nations, and spreads them out from Babel. You might ask, with all these nations, all of these people now, where is the promised seed? If you follow the genealogies, you get names. From Adam to Noah in Genesis chapter 5, from Noah to Shem in Genesis chapter 9, from Shem to Terah, and then from Terah to Abram in Genesis 11. And so the story now takes us to one man, Abram, Abram, and it brings us to what we know as the Abrahamic covenant The beginnings of it I just read in Genesis 12, 1 through 4. God now chooses to deal not with nations, but with one man. And from this one man would make a great nation. And from that one nation has his promised seed. And that one seed, that one son, will bless all the nations. The Abrahamic covenant is massive. Massive. It's hard to overstate how important this covenant is. John Wolverd, a theologian scholar, writes this. He says, It is recognized by all serious students of the Bible that the covenant with Abraham is one of the most important and determinative revelations in all of Scripture. It furnishes the key to the entire Old Testament, and it reaches for fulfillment in the New in the controversies of eschatology, that is end times, the interpretation of this covenant more or less settles the entire argument. The analysis of the provisions here, the character of their fulfillment, sets the mold for the entire body of scriptural truth. And I still think that he didn't overstate it. The Abrahamic covenant is a significant revelation of God's plan for salvation in human history. Let me shorten his quote with just simple, a simple sentence. Your understanding of the Bible, your understanding of theology, is determined by your understanding of this covenant and how it is fulfilled. You know, people are very interested in end times, eschatology, studying eschatology. And how do they go about learning about the end times? Well, usually they'll pick their favorite pastor, favorite theologian, and then go see what he said. And say, all right, I believe what he said. That's how normally people come to their eschatological beliefs. I would tell you, you don't have a firmly rooted eschatology. You don't know what will happen in the end until you start with the Abrahamic covenant and how you interpret this covenant. This covenant sets the scope for God's plan of salvation and redemption. So we need to understand the promises in this covenant, to understand how God's plan of redemption unfolds throughout history. And even more personally, even if you're like, well, Morgan, you know, I'm kind of interested in end times, but that sounds like a lot right now. I'm not trying to have this full, thorough understanding of theology and scripture. I want to know how this covenant relates to me. Well, let me tell you something. You're in this covenant if you're a child of God. You're in here. It's talking about you. There's promises for you here if you're a child of God by faith. And so we're going to see that As we go through the promises in this covenant, this is God's big plan, and if you're his child, you're in it. It's the plan to reverse the curse and bring salvation. Again, one covenant, one man, one nation, one seed, one son, to bless and save from every nation across the world and around the globe. If you're not a child of God yet, if you're not a child by faith, then you need to understand this covenant. Because it will show you the only way in. The only way in to the promises here given to Abram. It's by faith. So let's look at it. Let's look at these four verses and understand this monumental moment in history. First, I want you to see the call. The call of Abram. Look at verse 1. The Lord said to Abram, Go, from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. The command in this verse is very easy to spot. It's go. Go. In the Hebrew, there's emphasis here. And the emphasis is on the person, Abram. God is essentially calling Abram out, setting him apart and saying, you therefore go. So there's a very important response to this call that God gives. We see two prepositions in the verse that give us the direction that Abram was called to go. He was called to go from certain things and called to other things. So let's analyze these and understand these. First of all, what is Abram called to leave from? What is he called to go away from? Three things in this verse, you'll see them. He's called to go from his country, his kindred, and his father's house. Now, what are the significance of these? That word country could also be translated as land, called to leave his land. We were told in Genesis 10, and we saw this play out in Genesis 11, that God spread people into their lands each according to their language, by their clan, and in their nations. And so leaving the land is more than leaving just your geography, that's familiar. It's leaving your nationality, leaving the culture, leaving the language. And more than just leaving these people that you're familiar with, leaving your land, leaving your nation means you're also leaving your family, your kindred, that's that word there, kindred means relatives, and it's referring to the, uh, the extended relatives, cousins, aunts, uncles. So Abram's called to leave his land, he's called to leave his kindred, but maybe even the most hard, he was called to leave his father's house. Not only his people group, not only his extended family, he's called to leave his immediate family, his father. Now, what do we know about Abram's father? Abram's father is Terah. Terah. You need to know that Terah is not the best example to his sons. He's not an example of godliness. Terah is a Chaldean. He is a pagan. He worships idols. In fact, we see in Joshua 24.2, God says, Long ago, your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other gods. Terah is an idolater. There's even the suggestion from scholars that Terah had received a call in Macedonia, was called to leave and go to Canaan. And that was his intention, we see in verse 31 of chapter 11. But he decides then to settle in Haran. He doesn't get to Canaan. He doesn't fulfill the call. So, what's the significance of these things that Abram is called to leave? First of all, Abram's called to leave his earthly identity. He's called to leave uh, the Chaldean heritage. He's no longer called to be a Chaldean. He's no longer the son of Terah or to be identified that way. He's called to leave those identities. He's called to leave his earthly securities the comforts of being in his nation, surrounded by people who speak his language, his culture, his relatives. God calls him to leave all of those things behind and then to go where? What does he call him towards? Where is Abram called to go? You'll see at the end of verse 1, God calls him to the land that I will show you. Not to a land that you can see now. Not to a land just on the other side of the river. Not to a land that you're familiar with or that you know a lot about. Not to a place where the grass is greener. Not to a land that he even describes for Abram, but to a land that I will show you. What's the implication here? Abram's called to leave And he's called to follow. Called to follow God by faith. By faith. In other words, Abram, stop following your father and follow me. The call of Abram, it's in your outline, it was a call to leave and a call to follow. Just like the call of Jesus in discipleship, very similar. You see in the New Testament, Jesus calls his disciples. He says, follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. And then you notice, what do they leave behind? They leave behind their boats. They leave behind their nets, their trade. They leave behind their father, and they follow him. So the disciples, in following Jesus, they leave behind their earthly identities and securities. In Matthew chapter 10, we looked at this, you know, we're going through the book of Matthew earlier this spring. Jesus says, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life leaves life behind for my sake We'll find it. The call of God is a call to leave your old life behind. The call of God will cost you something. It always does. To leave behind those earthly securities and identities, to leave behind your past, to leave behind those idols that you worshipped, to sometimes leave friends, to sometimes leave family, Sometimes to leave those comforts, those conveniences, the culture, it's a call to leave behind earthly pleasures and possessions. It's a call to lose your life for His sake. It's not yours anymore if God has called you, it's His. So you're willing to leave all those things behind. That's how the call of God works in our lives the call to discipleship, the call into the ministry. I remember, you know, a a significant mentor in my life. I was in business school, almost done. I had a great job in medical sales, and I decided to become a pastor. And a significant mentor in my life said, what are you doing? You're not going to make any money as a pastor. I remember, you know, Um, being in Marietta, my hometown, surrounded by family, surrounded by spiritual mentors that have mentored me my whole life. The year was 2020, and we get the call. Summit Bible Church needs a pastor and needs a pastor soon. And immediately the comfort starts, well, my family's here. My spiritual mentors are here. It's safe here. I know Marietta. I don't, where even is Fontana? (laughs) But the call of God costs you. You have to leave some of those things behind and follow his will for your life. And trust him. Trust him. That's the big part. Trust him to follow his will. To give your life up to give behind, leave behind those earthly securities and identities. It's not always easy. It's not comfortable. It's, it's not safe. It's not approved by the world. The world's not going to pat you on the back for making those kind of decisions for Christ. But it always will take you in the direction of trusting, of following, of clinging, of drawing closer to God. All Abram got, was a call from God and promises that he made to leave everything familiar behind and truck or sorry trek toward the unknown following God on the basis of his word his covenant promises what's the call of God for your life what is the call of God for your life first of all the call to discipleship are you truly following Jesus and have you left behind those idols those sinful pleasures that you were living for, and surrendered to Christ. And then even as a Christ follower, there are additional callings in our life as a father, as a husband, as a mother, as a godly man, as a godly woman, to leave certain things behind in this world, the things that the culture will say, hey, you need to be living for this, you really need to buy a house. If you don't own a house, you're nothing. You really need to invest in X, invest in Y. You need to store up all of these safety measures and securities. You need to get insurance for your insurance. Invest here. Cling to the earthly. And the call of God goes, no, no, no. Leave behind earthly securities and identities and trust in me. Invest not in the earthly, but invest in the heavenly. Follow me. Trust me. Trust me. That is the call of God. And as as it comes to Abram, that's the call on his life, to leave these things behind and to follow God. And all he has, all he has are these covenant promises from God. So let's look now at the covenant. The covenant. That's in verses 2 through 3. The first thing that I want you to see in this covenant is all the I will statements. God says, I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and to him who dishonors you, I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This covenant is unilateral, meaning that God takes the terms of the covenant upon himself and he sees to it that they are fulfilled. He made promises, and he will fulfill them unconditionally. God didn't say, I will if, or I will when. He just says, I will. In fact, when he ratifies the covenant with Abram in Genesis 15, God performs the seminary, or seminary, ceremony, and he walks through the dead animals alone, And he indicates that he and he alone will fulfill these promises. There are two words that Abram banked his life on. Two words. God saying, I will. God's promises. Also, I want you to notice that the Abrahamic covenant is full of promises. Full of promises. In fact, in later chapters, we have more of these promises revealed it's like a package of a bunch of different packages that all have different addresses to them. They're promises to different people. There's promises to Abram, there's promises to the nation of Israel, and then there's promises to the whole world. So different addresses on these promises, and there's a bunch of promises within the package of the Abrahamic covenant. God puts the term on himself and says, I will fulfill all of these promises. I will bring all of these promises to fruition. But they're not all going to be fulfilled at the same time or to the same people. So it's important to understand where these promises are going and when they are fulfilled in redemptive history. So it's helpful sometimes to categorize the promises. And we see these categories in uh, this passage Uh, here before us in Genesis 12. So uh, we can categorize the promises into three major categories. The first category are the individual blessings. God promises to bless Abram individually, personally. Here are some of those promises. He says, I will bless you, Abram, and make your name great. He says, I will bless those who bless you, Abram, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. Later in chapter 15, verse 1, he says, fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be great, very great. So God delivers this package to Abram, and it is fulfilled in his lifetime. Abram is extraordinary, extraordinarily blessed and protected by God. Two times, Abram lies about his wife, Sarah, and gives her away to foreign kings. Both times, despite being caught in his lie, he walks away from these foreign kings with his life, his wife, and more money. How does that work? Abram fights four warlords kings and their armies with just 318 men and he wins abram was extraordinarily wealthy although a sojourner in a foreign land people just give him stuff if you read genesis hey take this take this and sometimes even abram denies it and goes i don't want i don't want to be known as somebody who is made wealthy by you i'm trusting god for my wealth to come and so he turns down gifts From people. Kings give him gifts, treasure, free burial grounds for his dead. He is extraordinarily blessed in his life. And those are specific promises of individual blessing, not for you and I, but for Abram. Be wary of the prosperity gospel preacher who tells you that you can have Abram's promises of wealth, of possessions of safety and security in foreign lands. You're not promised those things. Abram was. So those are individual promises given to Abram. And those were fulfilled in his lifetime. Genesis 24.1 says, Now Abraham was old, he was well advanced in years, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. He kept his promises to Abraham. The name of Abraham even lives on today. Do you know Abraham is a father not just in the Christian faith, the Christian heritage, but also in the Islamic religion? He has a great name. And so God kept that promise. God said, I will, and he did. And he did. The second category of blessings or promises that we see in this covenant are national blessings or national promises. Abram is promised to be the father of a great nation. We see that in verse 1. I will make of you a great nation. In chapter 15, verse 5, God brings him outside and says, Look toward the heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. This is a promise that was not delivered In Abraham's lifetime, his wife Sarah was barren and old. And although he does have a son through Sarah, the son of promise, Isaac, he doesn't see Isaac and his descendants become a nation. This promise was fulfilled through Sarah, the covenant son Isaac, it's passed down to his offspring. Specifically, Jacob, who is called Israel. Jacob has 12 sons who become the 12 heads of the tribes of Israel. And they only grow to national size, the innumerable amount, in Egypt 400 years after the promises of God come to Abram. So God said, I will. Abraham didn't see it, but God did. And he made from Abraham a great nation, the nation of Israel. And another promise attached to this blessed nation is the land that they were promised to inherit. If you look back at chapter 12 and verse 7, the Lord appears to Abram and says, to your offspring, I will give this land. At the time, Abram is traveling through Canaan. In chapter 15, verse 18, God again promises and says, to your offspring, I will I will give this land, and then he defines borders, borders of the land of Canaan. Again, in chapter 17, verse 8, he says, I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings. He says, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession. And I will be their God. An everlasting possession. How long is everlasting? Just a couple thousand years? Forever. Forever. This is the promise of God. Now, if you read through your Old Testament, it seems as though that promise is fulfilled, at least partially. Israel occupies that land under Joshua. The height of their land occupancy will come in the monarchy years under David and Solomon. But history tells us that they were removed. They were taken into exile by Babylon and Assyria. And since then, they've only experienced turmoil. Other empires and nations have ruled over them. They have not owned that land permanently. They are not safely and peacefully dwelling in that land even today. And so it hasn't been fulfilled fully, at least not to the extent that God promised in this covenant. And so part of this covenant, that promise specifically, we have yet to see be fulfilled. And we expect it to still come in the future. Scholars will debate as to whether this promise has been fulfilled, or somehow this promise has been transformed into or for the church. I see no reason why we should treat this promise any different than the others that are made explicitly and literally and fulfilled explicitly and literally, if God said that he would give the land of Canaan as an everlasting possession to the nation of Israel, then we expect it to be fulfilled that way. And if it's not fulfilled yet, then we expect it to be fulfilled in Israel's restoration. And we see later in Scripture, that comes at the end when Christ comes back and they look upon him whom they've pierced. They repent. They are restored in salvation by faith in Jesus Christ. And the king comes down and reigns from Jerusalem in that land. The people of Israel gather there in that kingdom. And we see evidence and pictures of this throughout the prophets and even into the New Testament. So that promise is still coming for Israel. Not for you and I, Gentiles, or nations, but we believe that to be a promise for Israel. So that's the national blessing, national promises here. That will affect your eschatology, by the way, your interpretation of that promise. The third thing that I think every single one of us can get on board with, regardless of our eschatology, the third category is the international blessing. Here's where you and I come in. The international blessing. This covenant made with Abram does not end with Abram and his physical descendants. But it extends to all of the nations. There is a promise here at the end for you and I. People like us. God tells Abram, you will be a blessing. In verse 2. And then he tells him this in verse 3. Look at this. In you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. How does that come about? Somehow in Abraham and in his descendants, all the nations of the earth are blessed. God tells Abraham in Genesis 22, 18, even more specifically, Well, first of all, in in chapter 17, by the way, that's when his name changes. I've been going back and forth from Abram and Abraham, same guy. But the name changes in chapter 17. Do you know what Abram means? Father. Do you know what Abraham means? Father of many. So God changes his name as the covenant is revealed more and more in chapter 17. And he says, you, Abram, will not just be the father of one nation. You'll be the father of many nations. So there's that promise, and that is part of the international blessing. And then in Genesis 22, God tells Abraham, He says, In your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Do you know what that word offspring is? Seed. Did you get chills? Because I did. When I saw this, what's God saying there? Abram, the promised seed is going to come through you and your descendants, and that promised seed will bless all of the nations. Who is it? Who is it? And how will He, this descendant of Abraham, bless the nations? I would like you to turn to Galatians chapter 3. Again, your understanding of the Abrahamic covenant will help you understand the Old Testament and see how the promises are fulfilled in the New Testament. In Galatians 3, we have an incredible section written by the Apostle Paul. And Paul is fighting a battle against Judaism. These descendants of Abraham are saying you need faith in Jesus to be saved and you need to do all our added rules, all our traditions, all our ceremonies. And the Apostle Paul goes, nope, it's faith in Jesus alone. It has been from the very beginning. It was was for your father Abraham. And he points back to Abraham as an example of faith and faith alone. But look at what he says in this chapter about the promises in the Abrahamic covenant. Specifically, the international blessing. Look at chapter 3, verses 8 and 9. It says, and the scripture foreseeing that God would justify, or that God would count righteous, or that God would save the Gentiles by faith. He preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. There's the gospel. The gospel is that in you, in your seed, all the nations shall be blessed. Verse 9, So then those who are of faith are blessed, along with Abraham, the man of faith. Look at verse 10. For all who rely on works by the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law, and do them. Oh, we know that's true, don't we? If you stumble at one point, you're guilty of it all. We have all failed the law. Amen? We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We cannot save ourselves by adhering to a perfect and holy law. You can't be saved by your own self-righteousness, your own good works. It's impossible. Because we have all failed and fallen short of the law. And verse 11. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ. Look at verse 13. Christ redeemed us. From the curse of the law. How? By becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanging or is hanged on a tree. So that, so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. So that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. Based on that section, what do we understand the promised blessing to be that comes through Abraham? Redemption, salvation. We are redeemed from the curse that we have been slaved under from Adam. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We are cursed by the law, but Christ redeemed us from that curse. How? By becoming a curse for us. Christ takes our curse, puts it upon himself, and goes to death, death on a cross, and he experiences the pain, the suffering, the struggle, the death that you and I deserve. Not just physically, but the spiritual wrath of God poured out against sinners. Christ took that upon himself. And in that act of redemption, he brings salvation to God. Not just to Abraham, not just the Jews, the descendants of Abraham, but to the nations, to the Gentiles, the ethnos. So, how does Jesus reverse the curse? By becoming a curse and dying on the cross. Why or how do we, the Gentiles, the nations, receive the blessing of Abraham? By faith in Christ. But how does Jesus relate to Abraham? Paul gets very specific in verse 16. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say to your offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, one seed. And to your offspring, who is who? Jesus Christ. Do you remember what Matthew 1.1 says? This is the genealogy of Jesus the Christ, the son of David, the son of who? Abraham. Jesus Christ is the descendant of Abraham, the promised seed, the offspring. And he brings salvation to the nations through his sacrifice on the cross. How do we receive this salvation? Paul tells us how in verses 26 through 29, Galatians 3, look at it. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God. How? Through faith. Trusting in the promised one. Clinging, believing in the promised Messiah. Abraham did from the past, looking forward to Christ who would come and redeem sinners. We look back at that completed work of redemption through the cross and the resurrection and believe just like Abraham, but from a different point in history. And then we look forward to the Messiah's second coming, his return. Look at verse 27, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, therefore there is not neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, male, no, male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. So how do you find yourself in the Abrahamic covenant? In the international blessings, this promise that we receive. How do you find yourself in this covenant? By faith in Jesus Christ. If you're not a child of God by faith, if you don't have faith, then you're not in this covenant. Maybe not yet. I call you today to repent of your sins and to believe and to have faith so that you can experience this blessing that came to us through Abraham. God promised Abraham that he would bless the world through his seed. The promise, this promise, this package was not delivered in Abraham's lifetime. It wasn't delivered in the history of Israel in the Old Testament, but it comes to us in the form of a son the son of Abraham, the promised offspring. And it was fulfilled when light came into the world, a revelation to the Gentiles. And Jesus preached to the Jew and the Gentile the gospel of the kingdom. He died on the cross bearing the sin of the Jew and the Gentile who believes in Him. He rose again to redeem the Jew and the Gentile from the curse of sin and death so that, as the prophets would affirm, He might bring salvation to the ends of the earth and to take people from every nation for his name, that remnant from all mankind may seek the Lord. All Gentiles who are called by his name become heirs of this promise. Pretty amazing. Pretty amazing to see the scope of this fulfilled, and we see it in the pages of Scripture. You know the song, maybe you do, maybe you don't. Father Abraham had many sons. And many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them. Are you? Are you? Do you believe in Jesus Christ? Have you surrendered to him? Have you repented of your sin and clung to him by faith? Trusting in him and him alone for salvation. Not your works. Not your good deeds. But just by faith. How would you know? How would you know if you have faith? Leads me to the third point. The last point is the conviction. The conviction. I want you to notice just a simple line in verse 4. Abram receives these incredible promises from God. And what does he do? It says, so Abram went as the Lord had told him. Genesis 15:6 this is a very important verse for your understanding of the Old Testament. Genesis 15:6. How were people in the Old Testament saved by another way? Nope, the same way. Look at how Abram was saved. Genesis 15:6, "So he believed the Lord. And he counted, counted it to him as righteousness. How was Abram justified? Was it by his works? It was by the faith that produced works. It was by faith, by believing. Same way we're saved today. What does that faith look like? How do we know? How do we know the conviction is settled in the heart of this person? Well, it displays itself in fruit. And what's the fruit that we see? What's Abram's response to these incredible promises of God and this call to leave behind everything familiar, all his earthly securities and identities? God said, Go, and what did Abraham do? He went. That word, went, is the same verb as go, it's just in a different form. God said, Go, and Abram went. On what basis? Because it was familiar? Because he had been raised in a Christian home? Because he had a great example of godliness before him? Because he could see the land on the other side of the river and go, oh yeah, that does look like a greener grass from over there. What, on what basis did he go? The promises of God. God's word. God said, I will, and he trusted that he would. Abram's wife, by the way, is barren, Sarah. He knows that before she gets the promise that the promised offspring would come through her. I mean, if you look at the history, you think, man, maybe Abram's brother Nahor would have been a better choice for God's plans to be fulfilled. Nahor could have kids with his wife. Abram couldn't, but God chose Abram to make his glory known, to make himself look bigger. He uses the weak, the small things of this world, to accomplish his promises. Abram left everything with nothing but the conviction in his heart that God's promises were true. The author of Hebrews, in Hebrews 11, tells us what faith is. It says, faith is the assurance of things hoped for. It's the conviction of things not seen. You've heard somebody said, I need to see it to believe it. It's not faith. That's human reason. Faith is the assurance, the conviction of things hoped for not yet seen. Abram didn't see it. A lot of these promises did not were not fulfilled in his lifetime. But he believed. That's it. He believed. He trusted. And it wasn't a perfect faith, by the way. It wasn't like Abraham was a, a solid bulwark of you know faith, and through every turn in his life, every difficult circumstance, he just said, I trust God. Abraham didn't always do that. Abraham lied. He had doubt issues. He struggled at times to believe that God's promises would come true, but he persevered simply by faith. He went. He went when God called him to go. That's it. He obeyed. He trusted. He clung to the promises of God. God said, go. Abraham went. Will you go? God has a calling for you in your life. First of all, again, to discipleship. But God may call a few of you to the mission field. Will you go? God may be calling you to the pastorate, to eldership, to be a deacon. Will you go? God is calling you to leave your comfort zone, to serve, to invest less time in earthly activities and more time in heavenly activities. Will you go? God is calling you to reinvest your money, not in earthly securities, but in heavenly treasure into the mission which moth and rust cannot destroy and where thieves cannot break in and steal. Will you go? God is calling you to surrender earthly securities, identities, comforts, to follow him. He wants you to leave behind those idols in your life. To leave the distractions. To get rid of the encumbrances. Will you go? Will you live with the conviction that God's promises are true? Salvation has come to the nations through Jesus Christ. His kingdom is coming. The mission of making and multiplying disciples of Jesus Christ is is all that matters. Seek Him and His kingdom first and all these things will come to you until He comes back. Will you go? Will you be faithful in that mission? Will you count the cost and follow Jesus Christ? Just like Abraham did. In response to these promises, Abram just simply trusted, clung to them, and he went. He goes. Will you? I want to read one more passage in the Old Testament, or sorry, in the New Testament, just in closing. Hebrews chapter 11. I want you to go there. Abraham is given as an example of faith. He trusts God. And we're going to be, I just want to read 8 through 16. And I want you to ask yourself, is this me? Do I have faith like this? Am I trusting God to the very end? Hoping in his promises like Abraham did. uh, Hebrews 11.8 says, By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, were born descendants, as many as the stars of the heavens, and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. All of these died in faith, not having received the things promised but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they were seeking a homeland. Verse 15, if they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Are you seeking the kingdom, or are you seeking the things of the earth? Are you trusting in nations and kings here, or are you trusting in the one true king, Jesus Christ, when he comes? Verse 17 of Hebrews 11, it says, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, when he was tested, we're going to look at that test next week. I'd argue one of the greatest tests of faith that any man has ever gone through. God asked Abraham to sacrifice his son. It's a great testimony of faith, but it's also a great, probably the greatest Old Testament illustration of the gospel that we have. And so really looking forward to that text next week. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, God, you are worthy of our trust. You're worthy of our lives. I pray that you'd help us get our minds out of the earthly out of the temporary, and for us to trust in you wholeheartedly. God, you've proven yourself faithful time and time again, even the fact that we still see the bow in the clouds. You are a covenant-keeping, promise-keeping God. We have every reason to trust you. I pray that you would open up the eyes of all of us to believe in things we've not yet seen to trust in a God that we cannot see, but we see the manifestation and evidence of you everywhere. God, I pray that you would open up fresh eyes of faith, even this morning, that people would open their eyes to see and trust in you and the great salvation that comes to us through Jesus Christ, the gospel. And I pray that just as Christians that... We would not become calloused and distracted by the hindrances and encumbrances of the world, but we'd free ourselves from those things, leave those things behind, and trust afresh again in your promises. And when you call us to go, God, by your word, pray that we would go. We would go and trust in you. In Jesus' name, amen.